is on concentration, loving, kind, loving kindness, and the hindrances. When I went to uh, teach at the monastery that Sayadaw Ulakana runs in Chaswa in Upper Burma, we were fortunate to have some other Sayadaws visit uh, this monastery. And one of these Sayadaws is named Sayadaw Agachara. And he told me something very nice about loving kindness. He said that if there's loving kindness in this world, the world lasts long. And if there's less loving kindness in the world, the world will last short. And I think we can get that sense of being in this human world and understanding that about our um, situation on the planet now, that we can see that the less loving kindness there is, the shorter its life will be. The, the more the loving kindness there is, the, the longer the world will last. I find that springtime at IMS is a very inspiring time to practice, especially loving kindness. If one just gets a sense of what it's like to open up the earth and work the soil, and work it enough to uh, plant seeds in this earth, uh, we understand that we can create the conditions for these seedlings to grow, but we can't force them the, to grow. Uh, and loving-kindness is very similar, where we can create the conditions for loving-kindness to grow, and that's so important, like coming to this retreat is, is creating the conditions for loving-kindness to grow. But then it takes a lot of patience uh, for that process to happen, just like watching a seedling. Uh, two years ago, a neighbor uh, dug up some of her perennials, some um, peonies, and planted them in front of the cottage that I stay at. Uh, and about two days ago, uh, there was one peony bud that looked like it might open in a, in a week or two, uh, but yesterday it just popped open. You know, it's just amazing to walk by these little buds, you know, since I've been here for now, I think, two weeks, uh, and then just for, you know, all of a sudden, it pops open, and I was so happy to see it, and I was smelling it, and it, um, an hour later, it hailed. I don't know if it hailed up here, but at the study center it hailed, we lost power. And I came out, and the, the, the flower had fallen over. You know, life, <laughs> life is hard. It's full of changes. And so I brought it inside, and it opened more. And it keeps opening. So remember that right now we're planting the seeds of loving-kindness, and that... Um, if we're patient, the kindness will grow out of the gentleness that we bring to this process. In the old days of Vipassana um, retreats, in 1975, I did a two-week retreat. And in those days, metta wasn't taught at all. Uh, and usually, 
maybe the last five minutes of a retreat, someone would sort of, it would be like, oh, by the way, (laughs) you know, really, literally five minutes before we would leave, it would be like, oh, by the way, there's this other practice called loving kindness. Um, And there'd be a short guided meditation. And it was so difficult for me to connect with that practice that I actually wouldn't even hear it. You know, my ear door would shut, especially when we got to my, you know, ourselves. I just, I couldn't even hear it. It was so hard for me to do. About a year later, you know, but a seed was planted, but I didn't know it. And about a year later, I was um, living in northern Maine in a parking lot in midwinter. You know, there'd been a lot of snow that year. And I was um, waiting for somebody. There was no heat in my car. Uh, And I finally uh, stepped outside, and I was very irritable and grumpy, waiting impatiently. Uh, It was cloudy. Another snowstorm was coming. Uh, And I remember um, this moment still where uh, the sun came out. And I just felt that experience of somehow loving kindness appeared. And I'd never really felt like I had experienced it before. And it was so vivid that I recognized it, you know, and I related it to hearing it, even though I was closed, I knew something had opened in me. It soon turned into almost a cartoon because it didn't last very long. It was like one or two seconds and I felt like, you know, holding this moment open, like a cartoon character, just kind of, wait, don't go away yet, and just kind of trying to bask in it before it disappeared. Um, It wasn't a fast process for me. You know, that happened. I couldn't practice it for some years. I still wouldn't hear it when it was mentioned at the end of retreats. And it wasn't until 15 years later that I dared to do it as a retreat. You know, I knew I'd have to face a lot of my own self-hatred, and it was just too much for me to do until 1990. I was ready at the point that I did it, but it wasn't easy. Remember in the loving-kindness practice that very different from the mindfulness and vipassana, when you have the experience of loving-kindness, hold on to it. You know, it's so funny to shift from mindfulness to metta because we're always saying, let it go, <laughs> let it go, watch it change, let it go. In metta, bask in it, get absorbed in it, hold on to it, try not to get attached to it. Uh, but it's an opposite practice. One of the proximate causes or conditions for loving-kindness to arise is seeing the positive qualities in another or oneself. One of the ways I try to get that across is that say you had a flower and you, you looked at it and you, either it's in the ground and you're walking around it or you have it in your hand and you're looking at it. Each flower will have its most beautiful angle. And each be- person, including ourselves, has a beautiful side. 
every being has a beautiful side. Uh, so the way in sometimes to kindness is to reflect a bit on the beautiful qualities of someone or oneself. So you'll hear us reminding you over and over when you shift to someone, including yourself, to take the time to tune in to that angle, the beautiful angle of that person. It's really important. We don't have to be the Dalai Lama to start bringing um, kindness into this world. It's usually little moments. Uh, Earlier this winter, uh, Steve had to go to the doctor's office and I went with him. I had to drive him. Uh, And we walked into this office and it was filled with people who seemed incredibly depressed, uh, hunched over, you know, and there was a whole line of people in the office waiting. Uh, so you got that feeling that, you know, there's this kind of grim waiting, kind of doom and gloom. Uh, and it was so painful that Steve and I walked as far <laughs> as we could to the end of the row and sat down. And so Steve, Steve was called in, uh, but I was just sitting there waiting. Uh, and there were a few really old people that were really severely hunched over. So I was just picked up a magazine and was reading. And this older man came in, and he had a shopping bag um, in his uh, hand. And even just seeing him, there was something about him that was light. And he looked in the room, and he picked the most hunched over, depressed old woman somebody who you would not necessarily want to sit next to. He sat right next to her and started talking to her, and he said, do you want to see my new coat? You know, and it was really just kind of a shabby old (laughs) coat that he had in his bag. You know, but he tried it on for her, and then he got... After five minutes, he had everybody in that room talking and laughing. You know, it was just amazing to see the transformation, you know, just from his reaching out connecting. Um, I don't think he knew what he did. This was just what he did. Uh, But it's a way in which we can remember uh, that it's often these kind of moments when we can be kind, connect, that bring about um, this atmosphere or field of loving-kindness. And that In those moments of watching that, I could really see what a gift to the world it is when we can do that. Of course, we can see in this world that not all of us can do that and that it can be hard to do that. So why is this practice of being loving and kind so difficult? Uh, And the obstacles and the metta practice are very similar in the, um, than in the Vipassana practice, that there are inner obstacles to peace and happiness, and there are the hindrances. And I'd like to just touch lightly on these in and out of this talk. 
Uh, so for those of you who don't know what they are, sleepiness is one of them. It's low energy. Sometimes concentration will be there, sometimes not. But it will be the feeling like you'll feel like you're really there. You're saying a phrase and you sink into it and nod. And you'll feel a little surprised, like, <laughs> I was really doing it, what happened? Uh, and it's just that there's not enough energy to maintain that concentration. And wherever we're really there with, we'll sink into it and not out. Restlessness is the exact opposite of this. It's high energy, very little concentration, so that when we do bring our attention to something like a phrase, we bounce off it. We try to bring understanding, we bounce off that. You know, we might even try to be with the breath, we'll bounce off that. Anything we try to go to, we slip. And it's very hard in this practice because it's a concentration practice and it can get very frustrating. Doubt. Doubt in ourselves, doubt in life, doubt in teachers, teachings, friends, is the third. The fourth and fifth are deeper roots. Um, No matter how long we've practiced, we come up against deeper and deeper roots of uh, aversion to pain in the world, fear, withdrawal from pain, or pushing it away. It's irritation, grumpiness. It's the not wanting mind. And then the last one is attachment to pleasure. It's clinging to pleasure. It's the wanting mind, neediness, longing, yearning, and addiction all fall into that root of attachment. The reason that these can be harder to work with is because it's often harder to see clearly what's happening. And with all the hindrances, what's happening is we're reacting to change. So life that we learn in the mindfulness practice, life is a stream of change. And with each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And this is a given. We can't control it. It flows. That's the nature of life. And so when we react to change, where we suffer the most is when we push away pain or or pull away from it or we hold on to the pleasant. And so one of the questions in our spiritual life is, you know, where is protection? You know, in this great world of change, in this human world, where do we get protection? And our conditioned response, our conditioned defense system is, is the hindrances. It's not that there's anything ultimately wrong or right about them. It's just that they tend to be unsatisfactory in terms of a relevant tool to work with this stream of change. So they're just a defense. And in practice, what we do is learn a more skillful response to the change. Uh, So the two things that we teach is the mindfulness, the non-judgmental attention to our moment-to-moment experience in the Vipassana practice, and then in the metta practice, which includes three other practices of compassion, of sympathetic joy and equanimity, um, 
we're bringing this energy of, in the metta practice, loving-kindness to our human experience. That's another protection. To give a kind of sense of how the mindfulness practice works is that we're trying to become more like a guest house. There's a quotation from Rumi that I really like. It's a poem that gives that sense of how we deal with change in this world if we have some degree of mindfulness. The guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Now this isn't resistance. You know, being a guest house is, you can only be a guest house if there's no resistance. This, this requires protection or we can't invite them in. Or if we do invite them in, we get into big trouble. So it's a beautiful image of being a guest house. Um, but if you look closely at your experience today, you know, how many guests did you put in the basement? Or the attic? Or did we lock the doors and not let any in? And we get that sense in when we practice of how much we judge our experience and sort it out. Uh, and we want to get rid of some experiences and keep other experiences. But still, the nature of life is that the guests will keep coming uninvited. And our practice is to accept them without getting lost in them and to see them as an impersonal, ever-changing process. This is... This is the mindfulness practice. When we do metta practice, which I'll describe in a minute, it's a little different. We're not being a guest house necessarily in this practice initially. Uh, But metta and mindfulness practice both require concentration. And the concentration, you can think of it as seclusion. And the seclusion is what helps deepen concentration. So one way that we can create the conditions for seclusion is not eating too much, not sleeping too much. It's like a middle path, not talking. The silence really helps concentration. Not reading, letting go of entertainment, not making as much eye contact. The more eye contact, the harder it is to maintain concentration. And the reason why there's a schedule like we have, which can be sometimes very challenging, of sit, walk, sit, walk, these chunks of time where we just seclude ourselves and do the sitting and walking helps build the concentration. 
had a teacher from India named Deepama who had developed this ability to concentrate her mind um, to an amazing degree. And I saw that it came out of her ardency, you know, and her ability to protect herself through that kind of seclusion. She didn't need, at the point that I met her, to sit, walk, sit, walk, to build it up, but she certainly protected it. And she was always saying to us teachers, you socialize too much. You know, she should be sitting at night. You know, she really pointed out where we weren't secluding ourselves and where we were losing the concentration. She could concentrate in the midst of a grandson running around, her daughter cooking, the television on. I mean, she could, she had, she had developed it to that point, but she certainly wasn't born that way. And she certainly was continuing to practice with such ardency. You know, at times it was humiliating (laughs) to be around her to see how much more she was going for it. When loving kindness and concentration are at your door, let them in. You know, and keep them as long as you can. That's what we do in this practice of loving kindness. We let them in, we hold on to them, try not to get too attached. Uh, And you'll notice that through that protection of seclusion, uh, the hindrances don't come up when the concentration is there. This doesn't mean that they're necessarily uprooted, but they're at bay and it feels wonderful. Now, the mind, when it's not filled with mental torment, when it's protected from our own mental torment, it's exquisite. As I was explaining this morning around what deep concentration is, there's four pieces to the, to the metta concentration. Uh, and the first is just being able to say a phrase. The second is being able to understand a phrase. The third is being able to connect that phrase to someone or some being or all beings. The fourth and fifth are connected, but I'll do them separately. Uh, there's a, the fourth is the feeling of loving kindness. And the fifth will be a breaking down of barriers between oneself and others. There's a deep feeling of interconnectedness. We usually get pieces of these um, parts of the concentration. So say the the first one is being able to say the phrase, we might not have enough concentration or energy to understand it. It might have no meaning for us. It might feel mechanical or dry. Uh, So maybe we're saying, may I be happy, but it's just as well, we might as well be saying, this rug is red. This rug is red. This rug is red. May I be happy. You know, it, it has a kind of tastelessness to it uh, because there's not enough concentration and energy to understand it. But please don't underestimate the power of being able to say that phrase. It's very different than being just vulnerable to the hindrances and being exposed 
constantly to the chatter in one's own mind and getting lost in the chatter within one's own mind. And I'd encourage you to remember that something is happening when you think nothing's happening. In one moment of saying a phrase, we're not overwhelmed by the hindrances. The concentration is there. It's just not as deep as we want. And look carefully, because sometimes because we don't like that it's that, you know, that surface-like, you know, we reject it. It might feel a little bit too ordinary, but it's really important and really powerful. At this point in my life, I've really seen how powerful being able to repeat that and continue through that process was. You know, so at the times when I'm having the most difficult time in my life, maybe I'm feeling vulnerable to the feeling of being unlovable or worthless or um, meaningless, no matter how difficult a mind state will arise, I've noticed that at least a metta thought will come in. You know, that's amazing. You know, when I look back, even eight years ago, there wasn't that power. You know, and it just came from just planting the seeds, keeping going. So I really encourage you to keep the practice going of metta. You don't have to force it. It's okay to back off when you need to back off. But try to keep going through the um, ordinariness of it, you know, the light concentration. Something's happening. I have a, um, actually an old employer of mine, an old boss, some years ago came to do a three-month retreat. Uh, and I know him and his wife. So his wife called me about a month after the three-month retreat. And she said, I'd just like to check out you know, if something is really meta or not. And so I said, okay. And she said, well, my husband comes home from work, and sometimes he comes in and he slams the door and he says, may you be happy. (laughs) (laughs) And it, you know, it turns out that somebody had just cut him off in traffic or he had somebody difficult with somebody. So he comes in, slams the door, may you be happy. And then he comes in and he slams the lights on, may you be peaceful. And then he slams the bathroom door, may he be liberated. (laughs) And she said, is that metta? (laughs) What do you think? I figure it's a start. You know, it's different than if he wasn't doing it. You know, there's that, there's some light there. He's trying. You know, it's a change. Um, It's better than if he was just angry and lost in it. So be careful of judging this, because I've seen that through the times for myself when I felt that way, um, that it, it, try to have some humor with it, but there is a change happening. I'd call it a transition time. The second piece to the concentration is being able to say the phrase but also understand it. It has some meaning. So you'll feel like you're really meaning it. You know, may you be safe and protected. There's some juice there. It's alive. 
It's less mechanical, less rote. It means the concentration and energy are, are deeper. So in this case, we're even more protected from the hindrances. The first two we work on a lot in this practice. The third one um, will have much more protection. The concentration's deeper. The energy has to be high. Um, and so we start to connect that juice or aliveness, the meaning, with something. So we're connecting it to ourself or we're connecting it to a benefactor or some being. Uh, and you'll feel when that happens that it's kind of like a rapturous feeling, but there'll be some interest in that experience. There'll be an interest in oneself. There'll be an interest in whatever, whoever we're doing. The fourth and fifth will feel like we're deeply immersed in the concentration and metta. We're pr- very protected from the hindrances. Uh, the, the fourth is we really wish the person well or we really wish ourselves well. We're mindful of metta. We're deeply immersed in metta. Loving kindness is present, and usually happiness, or sukha, (coughs) is present. The fifth, which remember four and five are somewhat connected, um, there's deep concentration, and there's no difference between the giver and the receiver. You know, there's no absolutely no difference. One isn't sending it, one isn't receiving it. There's just a deep unification and tranquility. We usually don't want to move. We have that feeling that we could sit forever. Uh, And there's no need for words. When we're deeply in love, there's no need for words. The phrases usually drop away for a while. Sometimes in my own practice, if when this has happened, um, I'll notice when the energy starts to go down, I just bring in a phrase or two, and it kind of ups the energy again. I wouldn't expect the third, fourth, and fifth to be happening a lot at this point. You know, they, as I said this morning, these are peak experiences, but you will drop into those at times. When I was in Burma this time, um, Umya Tang is, uh, was there translating. He's the translator that is here with us. And he's translated a lot uh, for me over the years with Sayada Upandita. But I didn't really know him that well. And he's actually born in Sagain, where we have the retreat, where Sayadaw lives. When Steve was there last year, he encouraged him to do a book on the elders in that area, which he's doing. So we had these little field trips, you know, the staff, sometimes with him, to go around to interview his heroes and heroines. So one day we went to see the Metta nun, and she's one of his heroines. And she just lives with a few nuns <coughs> in a very quiet, secluded place. Um, and she's a great example of what we could do with retirement. She's retired. She's retired from teaching, and she only does metta. 
That's what she's doing with the rest of her life. And I've never met anybody so happy. <laughs> you know, it's just really funny, but if you want to just spend your retirement doing metta, you know, you're going to probably be pretty happy. Uh, if that's all we do for some years, you know, it's a great idea, and happiness comes. Uh, she invited me to come stay with her, but she had this little twinkle in her eye. Um, she sleeps on the ground with no mattress outside with no mosquito repellent. So I said, well, maybe I'll come back. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't that inviting. Uh, but she, she's uh, amazing to, to sleep outside on the ground doing metta. It was really, again, in Upper Burma, you know, there's a kind of breadth to this tradition that Steve had told me about, but I hadn't realized was there. You know, so there's this range of bodhisattvas and, and um, people who are more ascetic, like these kind of ascetic practices. There's a lot of them, <laughs> you know, a lot more than I thought. Concentration is impermanent, and this is where the mindfulness practice really intersects with the metta practice. Um, When the hindrances do arise, the teaching with the metta practice is to try to keep going with it at first. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, what category, if it starts to get hard, switch to the easiest. Right now, we haven't done many categories, but say you're with a benefactor or dear friend, switch to yourself. If you're with yourself, try shifting to benefactor or dear friend. Um, And then if you can't, uh, just shift to the mindfulness practice, just anchor. You, You still don't try to open up to what's happening with mindfulness. You anchor with the breath, with sound. And then if it keeps knocking at the door, whatever comes and is knocking at the door, then be mindful of it. So we're moving from the protection of the metta at that point to the protection of mindfulness, present time awareness, open to change. So unless we're fully enlightened, fully free from suffering, this will happen. You know, the forces of darkness will appear. If sleepiness or restlessness or doubt, aversion, attachment appear, try to notice that it's the resistance to them that's so painful. It's the resistance to them that makes it so unworkable. And we suffer terribly. You know, we get so wrapped up in our self-centered mind. Uh, It's so painful. They become workable through seeing them clearly. Mindfulness has four aspects. Recognizing what's happening, accepting what's happening, being interested in what's happening, and not identifying, not taking what's personally, not not taking what's happening personally. So no matter how many years we've practiced, we face Uh, the hindrances, especially the deeper roots. So it's important when they really knock at the door to investigate how we're relating to them. 
Because say sleepiness comes, if we say, oh no, not sleepiness, we not only take a difficult, somewhat difficult situation of sleepiness, but we add an overlay of aversion onto it, which is a double hindrance. You know, it's so much harder. Um, and it becomes, un- the sleepiness becomes unworkable rather than just another human experience that we can work with. Even if we fall asleep, it's workable. When we're resisting it, it's not workable. So if we can shift from, oh no, not sleepiness, to the opposite, which would be indulgence, that wouldn't necessarily work right away to say, oh, oh, sleepiness, I guess I'll just take a little nap. You know, that's also not working with it that skillfully if we do that right away. It's, it's more like, oh, we recognize sleepiness. Oh, sleepiness, it's just low energy. It's not personal. It'll come and go. And let me see how I can work with this. It might end up that we sleep, but the experience will be very different. In the metta practice, one of the things to try to do at that point is to um, speed the phrases up, try to bring the image or feeling of whoever you're with more into focus. Um, We can open our eyes. We can get more of a sense that whoever we're doing is there. You might, I used to change the images a lot if I was working with images, but you can change the feeling presence of the person through remembering different times you've been with that person. So this, you might not have enough energy to even do what I'm saying yet, but it's just to know that you can start being creative, and being creative brings a little more energy. Restlessness, it's really a bad idea to speed the phrases up. You do the opposite. You'd go off like a rocket if you sped them up. Um, you, you really slow them down. You might go down to one phrase. You might even just say metta every five minutes. You know, you just slow it down. You might listen to hearing for a while and then do a little phrase. You know, instead of um, trying to bear down, you open up the attention as much you, as you can. And if it feels like you want to run out of here screaming, you might first try just lifting up your legs, you know, like this, and just wait it out. It's just um, high energy with no concentration or just little concentration. And again, it's workable if we don't fight it. It's also helpful to do a faster walk after you know, a, a sitting of, of restlessness. And if it gets really bad, going for a walk might help. Restlessness, even if you're a restless type, um, it can be workable if we don't uh, resist it. Restlessness and sleepiness are just imbalances of energy. And that's natural. It's not like it's our fault or that something's wrong that they're appearing. Doubt, I think, is a little more tricky. It's, it's kind of insidious, because it often takes the thought form of something that we bite, you know, we get very seduced by. 
For me, it took me years to get that when I had the thought, I'm not working hard enough, that that was actually doubt. And when I believed that thought, I'm not working hard enough, it usually meant that I didn't like my experience in meditation. It wasn't good enough. That I believed that if I was working harder, it would be better. And that, you know, just if I believed that thought, I would just about be ready to pick up a whip and slaughter myself myself not be able to make my practice go deeper. So it would go into, if I didn't catch it, it would go into this self-hatred and despair, you know, meaningless, all from not seeing that thought clearly. You know, one little thought passing through the mind, you know, because the conditioning for me is to bite it and to believe it. Your doubting thought process might be very different than mine. So I'm not saying that we all have the same kind of doubting thought, but I would say that we all get seduced by a certain doubting thought pattern. Doubt comes because we're not born in a perfect world or in the human world. Uh, So when we're not perfect or when our friends aren't perfect or our enemies, usually we don't perceive them as perfect, Life is certainly not perfect. Teachers aren't perfect. Uh, When we can't accept that, and when we can't work with how the limitations are, uh, we can't be mindful. We can't do metta. And the less we're doing it, the less protected we are, so the more overwhelmed by hindrances we're getting. And it can really lead to a helplessness and despair Watch out for the interpretation we make around ourselves or others when things aren't perfect. It's just an interpretation that leads to a point that can lead to a point of, uh, we, we can annihilate ourselves. This is really insidious. So be really careful of doubt. I find that two things can happen. Either we kind of bottom out and eventually we touch something spiritual again. We'll connect with something and our heart will open again. Or we actually get the practice of recognizing the pattern and we just don't buy it anymore. We don't get fooled. When I have the thought, I'm not working hard enough, an alarm system goes off of me. It's like, ooh, watch out. This is where I used to really slaughter myself, and I rarely do it. It's just I've learned not to get sucked into that pattern. So learning to just see that doubting phrase as just a thought. It's just a thought like the sky is blue is a thought. It's just a thought like the rug is red. But it's because we believe it to be true in ours that we, we go down. When we get lost in doubt, we often blame ourselves or blame others for life not going the way we want it to. So I also find that if I get lost, if we get lost in doubt, you can also look back. Try it on this retreat because it can be really interesting to explore doubt. To see when something has been painful and we haven't been protected, we've gotten lost in it, the reaction to it, We couldn't be mindful. 
that that's usually when doubt happens. You know, so there's a recipe for it. Something painful happened, we might feel betrayed by it, and we don't see the relationship between not being able to open to pain and doubt. Compassion, you know, it metta is the first um, practice we learn in the Brahma Viharas, or ideal abodes. Um, compassion is specifically caring about the pain, and we'll learn that in a few days. But try to do some metta for the pain at this point. This past year, um, there was something that I felt quite betrayed by. And I know, you know, in our lives how hard it is when something feels so painful and that experience of betrayal comes. Uh, But I noticed this past year how it was just that I didn't know how to experience it. And I literally didn't know how to be mindful of betrayal. So it was that resistance. I didn't, I didn't want to feel it. And I kept getting caught and caught in the story and blaming. But really, you know, over time, I felt so appreciative of the practice that I could do some compassion. And then I felt like I could be mindful of that experience. And it did come and go. I didn't die from it. It felt like I might. But, you know, it was that sense of... Uh, really learning how to be with that betrayal. And it felt like such an accomplishment. So ultimately, metta and mindfulness protects us enough so that if we have closed off to an experience, we can open again, like a child opens to life, but we have the protection of the wisdom and of compassion or metta to help us. We'll have to wait for aversion and attachment. Somebody else will talk about it. <laughs> you know, but we can I'll take questions or Marciers. You know, we'll we'll have groups starting tomorrow, so um we'll get to them. I found that we can bring the metta practice into the mindfulness practice when we're working with the hindrances. Uh, So it's almost like the metta and mindfulness will come together when we have to shift to being mindful of our experience. Uh, So say, for example, with aversion or attachment, but also sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. It's like there's a a kindness with the non-judgmental attention. Mindfulness is non-judgmental attention, but there's a warmth in it. There's a care. Uh, And I think ultimately... That's why we do this practice. You know, we really have that relationship to um, these experiences, whatever they are in life, these guests, uninvited guests that come and go by themselves. Life comes and goes by itself. We have a, um, 
these two tools to bring to our experience that's very helpful. We feel protected. So I would encourage you to mostly have patience. You know, you can do it. Keep going with the metta and the concentration as much as you can. If it feels like you're forcing, shift to, shift to mindfulness. If, if you get a multiple hindrance attack or a hindrance attack, again, shift to mindfulness. Eventually the hindrance will come and go by itself and you can start in with a metta again. And there's nothing wrong with that process. It's part of the process. So please don't feel like there, it's a failure if you're shifting to mindfulness. It's part of the metta practice to do that. So I'd like to end with a little story about um, metta. I'm emphasizing tonight that it's often little touches in life where we notice the power of metta. Um, At the end of April, I live in Honolulu, and I had to fly to Vancouver to teach a weekend and then come back home for a few days, and then I had to fly back to Vancouver and go up to British Columbia to teach a 10-day retreat and then come here. So it was leaving for a weekend, coming home with a lot to do, and then leaving again for two months. So at those times, I usually start to feel a bit tired and overwhelmed. So I have a friend, Steve wasn't home, my husband, to pick me up at the airport. So I have a friend who promised me she'd be there at the airport. You know, I knew I'd be tired. I knew I had a lot to do. I knew it would be late at night. Uh, And I had, you know, she's a person who tends to sometimes forget things like that. So we, we really talked this out. And I said, you know, I can get someone else to do it. And she's like, no, 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 I really want to do it. I'll be there. I called her before I left. I get out of the plane, you know, come out, waiting and waiting. And I waited and waited. And because she just was so sure she was going to pick me up, you know, I waited longer than I probably should have. So I waited and waited. And I was really tired. It was midnight. Um, so finally, I called and uh, the answering machine went on and it didn't seem like anyone was home. So I thought, well, she's coming. And I went out, you know, because her house always has kids and people in it. So it was odd that it was uh, the answering machine was on. So I went out and waited and waited. And all this time that I was outside, you know, it was a long time. So, you know, people were getting out of planes, getting their baggage and leaving. And I'd still be there. Then another plane would arrive. <laughs> people would get their baggage and I'd still be sitting there. There was a man who was waiting for somebody to get off a plane and he wasn't sure which flight it was. And so he, and you know how nowadays you can't park the car a lot at the curbs there. You're asked to just keep going around and around. So this man, you know, I was sitting there, it was like a cartoon too. You know, I was watching him, he just kept going round and round and coming back and coming back and coming back. And he kept seeing me sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. (laughs) This went on for two hours. You know, he was going around and people were coming and going, you know, so we started noticing <laughs> each other. And there was one point where he said, he stopped the car, got out and he said, could you watch my car? 
you know, and he went off, and I said, no, no problem. <laughs> I've been watching your car for two hours. <laughs> you know, so he went, and he went off for ten minutes, came back, went around a bit, you know, Anita, it went on for another half an hour. Um, so I eventually had called another friend, but she couldn't get there right away. Uh, so just before this friend came, he had given up, and he came by, and he actually had bought me a flower lay. You know, the last time he left, he brought me this beautiful lay of flowers, you know, and said, you know, goodbye, and left. You know, and that was so meaningful. You know, that's a, it's a little touch, but it was so beautiful. You know, it was that, it's that way in which we connect with someone and we're kind. You know, and that's what this is about. Whether it's we're connecting with ourselves and being kind, or connecting with some other being and being kind. And that we can be here and practice this is a gift. You know, it's so rare in this world. So I know it can be hard the first few days, but if we keep going, we're planting a garden of kindness. Let's sit for a minute. My friend still owes me a few favors. May we be happy and peaceful of heart.